We're turning this morning in our Bible to the prophecy of Joel. If you find Daniel, then come to Hosea. You'll come to Joel. The prophecy of Joel. We're going to read in chapter 2. Reading from verse 12 right through to verse 21. Let's hear the word of the Lord. The words will come up on screen for all who are online. We do welcome you. And we pray the Lord will bless the reading of his word to your heart. Let's hear the word of God. Joel chapter 2 verse 12. Therefore... Also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. And repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent. And leave a blessing behind him. Even a meat offering and a drink offering. Unto the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children. And those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye shall be satisfied therewith, and I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. But I will remove far off from you the northern army and will drive him into a land barren and desolate, with his face toward the east sea and his hinder part toward the utmost sea and his stink shall come up and his ill savor shall come up because he hath done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice for the Lord will do great things. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious and infallible word. Now for a few minutes, I want to speak to the children. And I want to leave with you just a little text of scripture, young people. And it's this. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7, For God loveth a cheerful giver. 
bag with me. We'll see what's inside it today. Okay. I've got a box of Cadbury's Heroes chocolate. I've also got a glass full of other chocolate bars and a Cadbury's egg in the bottom. I have got a family favorite, Cadbury's hot drinking chocolate that people love to drink at night when they go to sleep. I've also got a big bar of Cadbury's chocolate. This was a personal present that somebody bought to David, and I have not eaten it yet. Oh, sorry. I better make sure I put it in the right thing. All right. Now, I have one other little thing. Oh, yes. I knew there was something else. Another little egg. I'll put it here so it can be seen in the camera. Now, all of these things here are chocolate. And I have to confess to you, I have a big weakness for chocolate. I love chocolate. And if I'm sure if I asked you to put up your hands, you would say, I love chocolate too, Mr. McLaughlin. But, you know, there's two things happens to me when I eat chocolate. And it's this. I begin to bulge. And as my late mother-in-law said, David, you're far too fat. Stop eating my chocolate sweets. And another thing that happens to me when I eat too much chocolate, so if I opened this bar and took one square, I have to eat all of the squares. And then I get a sore head. It begins to get light and begins to get dizzy. You see, I'm sure you are like me. You love chocolate. But did you ever think of where chocolate actually originated and where it come from? Well, let me tell you. I said last week, as we would think about another individual, remember, we talked about Henry Hines. This week, we're going to talk about a man called John Cabris, because this is where Cabris chocolate all started from. It started with a man called John Cabri, and he was born in 1801, and he died in 1889. He lived for 88 years. Now, John Cabri founded the Cabri's Chocolate Factory. And when he was 23, 1824, he opened a grocer's shop in Birmingham. Now, of course, he was trying to break into the grocer trade. And he decided that he was going to sell tea in his shop. And he decided as well he was going to sell coffee. And he decided as well he was going to sell chocolate drink called drinking chocolate or coca chocolate. You see, in Birmingham at that time, there was loads of pubs. And the people of that age, like today, were getting drunk. And they were described as drunkards. Now, John Cabris was a Christian. And he loved the Lord Jesus. And he knew that the land in England at that time was full of drunkards. And he decided, I want to have some alternative to offer the people. Please don't take drink. Drink drinking chocolate before you go to bed. Drink some coffee or drink some tea. 
And John Cadbury's became very, very, very successful. And over time, then the drinking chocolate was made into chocolate sweets, chocolate bars, and chocolate eggs. And now the, the factory, as far as I know, has been taken over by, I think it's an American company called Crafts. And do you know that that factory is estimated to be worth 12 billion pounds? One of the most successful businesses in the United Kingdom. Now, let me tell you something else about John Cabra. He was a very generous man. Not only did he become a Christian early in life and love the Lord Jesus, but he lived the Christian life before men. And you see, his factory when he started, boys and girls, was one of the cleanest in the whole of England. It wasn't dirty and it wasn't dangerous. And he had a great love for his workers. And he wanted to make his factory the safest place for his workers and the cleanest place for his workers. Do you know what he introduced? He was the first man to introduce a canteen. Some of you might work in a factory and there's a canteen there. Well, John Cabry's factory had the first canteen and he made sure he had a dining room for his workers and they could come in and they could drink the tea, drink coffee, drink the drinking show. No alcohol was allowed. He hated alcohol with a vengeance. He was, he was really what we would call a teetotaler. He had a, a zero policy to alcohol. But let me tell you something else he had in his factory. He had a cricket pitch. And, and he allowed his workers to go out at lunchtime and do some exercise and play a game of cricket or run about. I'll tell you something else that he started. Now, he didn't actually finish it. His, his brother George did. They set up a village, and it's still in England to this day, and it's called Bourneville. You see, there's another form of chocolate, a darker chocolate. This is Cadbury's, but you can get a darker chocolate, and it's called Bourneville chocolate. And you know, dark chocolate's one of my favorites. It's supposed to be very good for you. That's if you eat it, not the way I do, till you bulge and get a sore head, but just eat a couple of slices at a time. But in that village... There was parks, there was houses for all his workers, and also there was a school. And you know what was strange about Bourneville to this day? There's no pub in it. No pubs. Plenty of tea rooms. You can get coffee, get drinking chocolate, but no pubs. See, that was due to the legacy of this man, John Cabri. And I just want you to remember that the next time you eat a chocolate bar, that that all started in the heart and mind of John Cabri, who was against the selling of alcohol and introduced cocoa chocolate as an alternative, and the whole thing flourished and God blessed him. The Bible says, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And I believe that God blessed John Cabri for his stand and witness as a Christian, but also for his love to the people because he had a burden to see people saved and won for Christ, even though John Cabri was, uh, uh, belonged to 
uh, an organization called the Society of Friends, or better known as the Quakers. And while he had some little strange things as he believed in, he certainly believed in a personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. I leave that little thought with you, and I pray that the Lord will bless you at this time. Okay, if I can set these down, because they melt in that sun. Wouldn't want my big bar of chocolate to be destroyed. All right, now, now my text this morning is taken from Joel chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. And my theme today I've entitled... The jealousy of the Lord toward his people. Listen to verse 18 in particular. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Now many Bible scholars and commentators rightly asked, who was the prophet Joel? When did he minister? Where did he come from? What way was he called into the prophetic office? Now, the answer to these questions is this. We simply don't know. The Holy Spirit is silent. You see, we know nothing of Joel's background, where he came from, his previous occupation, or the real timing of his ministry. All we can say is this. He was the son of a man called Pethuel, and he came upon the scene of time against the backdrop of obscurity. His name was called Joel. Joel means my God is Jehovah or Jehovah is my God. It was a common name in Judah at that time. Yet the Joel in the Bible was a man in touch with the Lord. A man who heard the voice of the Lord to his own soul. A man who had a word from God in his day and generation. I want you to think of Joel this morning as a man with a message from God and a man who faithfully proclaimed that message to the people in his day and generation. Now, in Joel's day, a great tragedy struck the land of Judah. A great army of locusts had invaded the land. And these ant-like creatures, two and four inches long, ate and ate and ate everything that was green before them. They destroyed and ravished the whole country. And after this, Joel stood as a faithful messenger of God and told the people, this plague of locusts is God's judgment upon you. God has sent this plague of locusts to chastise you. He accused the people of departing from the Lord. He said to them, you have sinned against the Lord. You must repent and return to him with all your heart. He wanted them to know that the Lord had an intention in sending out this plague. This blasting, if we call it, was ultimately for your blessing. And in light of that, you need to repent and get right with the Lord. Hi, Well, he gives us the answer in Joel chapter 2, especially verses 15 right through to 
17. And then the result is, verse 18, Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Here's the particular nature of true repentance. And what follows is this. Then, Hotan, at that particular time, at that hour, the Lord will be jealous for his land and pity his people. Let's remember that it's true today, young people, that God is love. You hear that. It is also true that God is merciful. But let me also tell you that God is also intrinsically holy. That the God of the Bible is a God of justice and a God of wrath. And yet even his judgments, his chastisements were never intended to create despair and discouragement and depression, disillusionment. But were intended to create deliverance, to, to bring about delight. I was struck this week of how the book of Joel ends. Listen to what it says in verse um, um, 17. So shall you know that I, the Lord your God, dwelleth in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall be no strangers pass through her any more. He tells us here in verse 16. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. You see, the blasting was to lead to brokenness. And from that place of brokenness, it was to lead to blessing. They were to bask in the grace and goodness of God. And the real message of the plague of locusts from the mouth of Joel was to bring God's people through the blasting by brokenness into a place of blessedness where the Lord would be the hope of his people. The Lord would be the strength of his children. Now, as I thought of this message today, there were three things came to mind. If we don't get it finished, we'll return to this next week. But I want you to think, first of all, of the reproach that must be recognized. If you look with me at verse 17, it says, Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. You see, Joel is telling the people of Judah, There's something wrong in the land. What is happening has had a terrible effect and impact on the country as well as the church. This plague of locusts is a judgment from God. It's a harbinger of, of God's love, his mercy, but also a harbinger of God's grace. And, and this plague of locusts is but a harbinger of a greater manifestation of God's wrath that's to come because I will not send a plague of literal locusts. I will send the Babylonian army and they'll convey like locusts and also destroy the land. The day of the Lord cometh. Let's remember this world is under a curse. Let's remember that every little judgment in this earth is a messenger from God. 
You see, the devastation of every little judgment is a reminder that this world is under a curse. That God, the God of the Bible, this God of love and goodness and mercy, is also a God of wrath who hates sin. And one day, listen to me, it'll be proclaimed the day of the Lord cometh and is coming because in that day he will visit the world in a terrible and final day of judgment. It's the day of God's wrath. I want to ask the question, are we not living in days that are similar to Joel? Has a great tragedy not struck our United Kingdom? Think of this COVID-19 pandemic for this past two years. You see, every earthquake, all the volcanic eruptions, the tornadoes, the hurricanes, the plague of locusts and mice, the floods, the drought, the invading armies that have happened in the world are all little judgments of God. And they're a reminder to us that the Lord is a God of wrath. And you see, these judgments are God's reproach in the country and in the church. And that reproach must be recognized. You see, if you look at chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it says, Hear this, ye old men, and give ear all ye inhabitants of the land. Had this been in your day, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell ye your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children another generation. You see, Joel is addressing the old men, those that are wise and aged. He's addressing the fathers. He's speaking to the people. He's instructing them to tell their children and to tell the children to tell their children that they've never seen the like of this in their day, in their generation. And the fathers are asking, the aged men are asking, the children are asking, have you ever seen this in a past generation? You see, the day of Israel's blessing had gone. The day of blasting had come. The judgment of God has fallen. And in Joel's day, it was a literal plague of locusts. And the message of the locusts was a harbinger. A messenger in itself that God's a God of wrath and the day of destruction has come. Look at chapter 1 verse 4. That which the palmer worm have left hath the locust eaten. And that which the locust have left hath the canker worm eaten. And that which the canker worm have left hath the caterpillar eaten. Awake ye drunkards. You see, the locust devoured it all. The whole land was destroyed. He says in verse 5, Awake ye drunkards and weep and howl all ye drinkers of wine because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. In other words, there's no alcohol to consume. Look at verse 7 of chapter 1. He hath laid my vine waste and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean bare and cast it away the branches thereof are made white the fig tree is barked it's laid bare its branches have been made white look at verse 9 the meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord why 
Because the field is wasted. There's no corn, there's no wheat, there's no barley, there's no oil, there's not even fruit in the trees. Listen to verse 12. The vine is dried up, the fig tree languishes, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. Even all the trees of the field are withered because joy is withered away from the sons of men. In other words, all the natural resources of the land is gone. The land is destroyed. It's like a a wonderful well-watered garden that has been laid waste and barren. In fact, he uses this. Chapter 2, verse 3, a fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, yea, and nothing shall escape them. That's a reference to the Babylonian army that was to come like a plague of locusts into the land of Judah and destroy all before it. And this national calamity, the literal plague of locusts, the Babylonian army that was to come, was a sign of God's judgment. Why? Because the God of the Bible is a God of wrath who hates sin. And this national calamity is a messenger from God to his people to awaken them, to to get them to realize something. There's something that we need to recognize, something we need to realize. And it's this, that, that we have sinned against the Lord. It's not only a day of destruction. It's a day of departure. You see, this is really lost on a lot of people. The disaster and the calamity that comes, people don't see it. People don't recognize it as a, as a messenger from God. They don't see it as a, a harbinger, that, that it's a message about God's wrath. They argue, but, but wait a wee minute. God's a God of love. God will forgive sin. This is just a, a temporary thing that's happened. This is going to pass. The good days will come back again. And you see, even the average believer, the average Christian cannot see it. Oh, that we could discern this morning that we're living in the days of the imminent wrath of God in the world. Because what man sows he shall reap. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Why blow the trumpet? Because the people of God need to recognize and realize they've sinned against the Lord. They need to realize and recognize that there's been a real evident departure from the Lord. And the enemy has come in like a flood. And there's a barrenness today. There's a coldness today. There's a a prayerlessness today. There's a powerlessness today. You see, it's a day when we can no longer enjoy the personal, powerful presence of the Lord. It's a day when it's as if his favor has departed. And the ungodly are asking, as they say there in verse 17, Wherefore should the people say among the people, Where is their God? The Lord has withdrawn himself. The Lord is withholding blessing. The Lord has sent this blasting. Why? Because it's a day of departure from him and his ways. It's also a day of despondency. I think of the 
call, blow the trumpet. If you link it up with chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound alarm in my holy mountain. Do you see the connection? Why sound an alarm? Because people are spiritually asleep. Now, some mornings I wake up with the alarm. Some mornings I don't. But when the alarm goes off, I hear it, and I know that's a signal for me to get up out of bed. Some people hear the alarm and switch it off. And, of course, that happens at times. I confess that. But people who are spiritually asleep are not fully aware of what is happening in the country and in the church. That is, they're not awake to the real situation. They haven't realized what is happening. Things are not too bad. Things are okay. Things are going along nicely. Things will get better. But I, but I want to tell you, now listen to me carefully. The church is asleep to reality. And what we need, and I call the Free Presbyterian Church to this, we need a baptism of honesty. And surely this is God's call to the country. And this is God's call to the church in the country. There's something wrong. Can we not say today that the superpowers are in trouble? Whether it's the United States of America, the United Kingdom, Japan or China, Europe. You think of tsunamis that are taking place. We hear of earthquakes. Tornadoes and hurricanes, droughts, floods and heat waves. We're going to hear of economic meltdown and financial woes that are coming even this year. And why are all these things being sent? What is happening? Here's the answer. God is at work to get people's attention. God is speaking. But the reality is that so many are spiritually asleep, they're unaware and they're not listening to him. And they're going about living their life, building, working, marrying, giving in marriage, laughing and joking, doing what's right in their own eyes. But they're not listening for the voice of the Lord. They're spiritually asleep. We, we'll apply this to the church. I, I believe today in revival. But let me say this. The church of Jesus Christ is far away from the days of revival as if it has ever, ever been in its life. We're no longer living in 1517 or 1521. It's over 500 years from Reformation time. And the Reformation, I believe, was the greatest revival in the whole of the world ever since the days of Pentecost. But we're not living in Pentecostal times. We're not, we're not living in days of Reformation. We're not even living in days of revival. Do we not live in a day of institutional apostasy of the professing church? It's bishops, it's ministers. Our churches, many of them, sadly, not so apostatized that they're full of corruption that some of them would even dare to have a sodomite in the pulpit bringing the word of God and leading the worship. You know, if I think of addressing our own Free Presbyterian Church as a denomination, we have to recognize something, folks. The early days of the Free Church are gone. 
We're not living in the 1960s. Oh, we would love to be. Or the 1980s. In the very height of the late Dr. Paisley's ministry. The tide is out spiritually. And we labor on. And we have labored here now for during my ministry 21, 22 years. And we sow the word of God faithfully. And I try to be as faithful to the blood in the book as I can. And you know that and you've stood with me. And you've prayed alongside me. And we have labored together. But, but we've got to face some reality. And, and in the study this week, this thought has come to me. Where's the harvest, Lord? Where's the ingathering of precious souls and families? Lord, where's the spiritual reaping? We have so much. But where's the reaping? And this is the thought that come. And you know, this grieves me. This breaks me. Is there an army of locusts that are eating away where we labor to destroy it? You see, something's wrong. We, 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 we are so barren. There's leanness abroad. We're so powerless. Yes, there's been sowing and planting. But something has happened that has destroyed the coming forth of the harvest. If I think of the day of Pentecost. Now, I'm not saying I'm like Peter, for I'm not. I'm not an inspired apostle. But Peter preached one sermon. Just one sermon. It's recorded in the book of Acts, Acts 2. And 3,000 souls were converted. Late Dr. Paisley could go down to Portofogie and preach one sermon and in one afternoon, 27 souls could come to Christ. He could have a mission in Balamina. And over 300 souls and more come to Christ. And yet the reality is, I could be preaching 3,000 sermons. And I'm allowing for 600 per year. That's five years in the ministry. And we struggle to have one convert. And when we do have a convert, we ask, is he real? Is he genuine? Is she truly saved? But what is the problem? What is wrong? Surely the root is this. We're really ignorant of where we are with the Lord. And I've asked myself, are we grieved? Are we broken? Where is the generation of young men and young women that will stand up and say, we're for God and Christ and his cause? I've been searching myself this week in relation to the formation of new free Presbyterian churches. The last constituted church was Ballyclare, and that was 15 years ago. Are we like Samson? Was not that the Lord has withdrawn? He's withholding blessing. 
See, the country's in dire straits. The church is in dire straits. And what's the first step to remedy the situation? It's this. There's a reproach that needs to be recognized. And the reproach is this, that God is behind this judgment. Oh, that we could trust him for his goodness because God is only and always good. And he's good at all the time. Oh, that we could trust him because God is all wise. He's never done a mistake. He's never done anything wrong. God is all powerful. He is absolutely sovereign. He's in control and he's at work. Even in the judgment and the chastisement, he's at work at all times and in all seasons. It's not a time to turn away from him. It's not a time to turn our back on him. It's not a day to be proud and proclaim we don't need God. Or say he is not good or is not all wise or not all powerful. Oh, let's see ourselves as creatures made in his image. And bow the knee to his sovereign majesty and glory. Let's see ourselves as nothing but specks of dust in his sight. And if we are his children and he's our heavenly father, then let's come before him in that spirit of brokenness and cry out of mercy in thee, Lord. That's the first thing. The reproach that needs to be recognized. Very quickly, the repentance that must be required. We're now coming to chapter 2, verses 12, right through to 17. Notice three things here. There's a personal call. He says in this um, call, uh, Turn ye to me. Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. He's addressing all the people of Judah. He's addressing the elders. He's addressing the children. He's addressing the babies, the bridegroom, and the bride out of her closet. There's a reason why he addresses the children and the bridegroom and the bride out of the closet. But notice also in verse 17, he addresses the priests. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, now, now we'll come back to that. In other words, in particular, he addresses the leadership of the church, the elders, the priests, the ministers of the Lord. He's speaking to the spiritual leaders and the oversight. He joels like a preacher addressing fellow preachers. He's a prophet to the prophets. He's a prophet to the priest. He's a prophet to the ministers, those involved in the Lord's service. And he's saying to men at the altar in service, men in the pulpit, you must deal with your own heart and life first. Now, it's wonderful nobody's left out, for he includes the children, the babies, the bridegroom and the bride But the men in the pulpit must be men who have a message from God. And that man must first be moved by the message as that message impacts on his own heart and life. I can tell you it's possible to be involved in service, offer praise, prayer and preach, practice and not be moved in heart. See, I I remember... Some of you may do at the Martyrs Memorial, the late Mary Peckham from the Faith Mission. 
And uh, I remember being with her in the Highlands of Scotland and I remember her singing in one of the old Scottish kirks there. She sung uh, uh, the Psalm 23 and another particular uh, Psalm in Gaelic. And as she stood singing, she stood weeping. And the tears were rolling down her face. And the whole congregation was moved. And I never witnessed before such passion and praise. And I never heard such passion and praise. I remember one time being asked to go and do some journey work in the uh, house where her and her late husband, the Reverend Colin Peckham, were living in Edinburgh. And I remember going to the door and I could hear someone praying inside. And I slipped through the back door and I went to this room uh, and I, I was about to go on in, but I heard this woman commune with God, and I, I stepped back and, and thought, I, I dare not interrupt, I cannot interrupt. Such passion in prayer. And of course, when you heard her preach the word of God, I, I say respectfully, she was maybe a better preacher than her uh, late husband. You see, it's not just a job. It's not just a profession. It's not a career to make money. And woe be to the ministers of the free church if they think it is a job and a career to make money and just a profession because that would mean their heart is not in it. And that will bring God's displeasure. Here's a call. The message of Joel was to each individual, the elders, the priests, the ministers of the Lord, the bride, the bridegroom, the children, he started with the leadership. How's your heart? Is there a genuine mourning for sin? He says here, rend your heart, not your garments. Verse 13. In other words, it's not to be a mere show, not to be a mere performance, not to be a mere profanse. True religion begins in the heart. You see, in those times they had funerals and they hired professional mourners and they would cry and wail and rend their clothes and have a deep sense of grief. But it was all outward. They were getting paid for doing it. And Job's wanting to know, is there real brokenness? Is there a real inner burden? And where's our sense of real brokenness? Where's the real sense of turning to the Lord? Are we so moved to hear this call? Serious and genuinely concerned? Filled with emotion as far as our nation and its sinfulness is concerned? Filled with emotion in relation to how holy and great God is? Are we filled with emotion in the sense that he's a God of wrath? Filled with emotion that many precious souls are lost and out of touch with God and heading down to hell? Notice quickly, this is a particular call. He says, verse 17, Let the priests and ministers of the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. You see, there's a weeping here. If we take the whole context, there's also a fasting. There's a mourning. There's a praying here, all connected. A time of weeping, a time of fasting, a time of mourning, a time of praying. That's the particular call. Give not thine heritage to reproof, that the heathen should not rule over them. You see, the priests and the ministers of the Lord must acknowledge that the Lord is right to send this judgment. He has been grieved. He's been offended. We have sinned against him. We've departed from him. And this temporal judgment, this plague of locusts, is a harbinger that there's a terrible army of coming, the Babylonians. They're not to protest, Lord, that's not fair. They're not to say, Lord, that's not right. 
They're not to say, Lord, why would you do such a thing to us? They're to recognize he's a God of wrath who hates sin. And this judgment is connected to the righteous anger of the Lord. And this is a call for brokenness. And as I've said, where is the brokenness today? Honestly broken before the Lord. Remember when Nehemiah heard the news about the city of Jerusalem, the walls were broken down, the gates had been burnt with fire, Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was ransacked, his treasures plundered, brought to Babylon. The Bible tells us there in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1 and verse 4, that he wept, he prayed, he fasted many days. There's a story told about the Salvation Army, and they had a new cadet, and he got out into a certain place and began to minister there one or two years, and he saw nothing happening, and there was no response. He felt the people were cold and indifferent. They had no thought, fear, and the regard of God, and he decided he was going to quit. So he sent word to General Booth that he wanted to quit, and General Booth sent back a telegram with two words on it, and it was this, try tears. Get a sight of the plight of the people. Get a sight of the power of God and be broken. This people's going to meet this God of judgment for the Bible says that every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Remember McShane and St. Peter's and Dundee? Do you know there's a spot in that church pulpit where the tear stains of the man of God are evident to this day? Tear stains in the pulpit. Real, true, genuine tears. Not a put on, not a show. He was passionate about something. And you know what we could pray this week? As we, in this month of January, Lord, give me a broken heart. And can I ask you to pray for me? And you pray that for me. Lord, give our pastor a broken heart. Sensitive to sin. We need to learn to weep. There has to be a mourning. There must be fasting. There must be brokenness. There must be a praying unto the Lord. Take away the reproach. Do we fear the holiness of God? Do we have a sight of the sinfulness of sin and its consequences? Notice, and we'll finish here this morning. There's a positional call here. Not only a personal in particular, but a positional call. Notice the place appointed. Weep between the porch and the altar. Assemble all. Let them see the reality that the heart of the minister of the Lord has been broken. You see, the people will respond to brokenness. If there's true heart preparation and brokenness, then let the people see that reality. You see, the children, by and large, in their innocence, don't really take it all in. They're, they just happily go along. The bride and the bridegroom so taken up with marriage that they're so excited about that that they're not really thinking about anything else. But when they come into the house of God and see the priests, the minister of the Lord, weep and mourn and are broken between the porch and the altar, then they will discover as they enter in and engage in service because it speaks of service. It speaks of sacrifice. It speaks of supplication. It speaks of seriousness. Spending the time to get through to the Lord. Filled with a sense of awe. Here's the repentance that must be required. Now I have a third point. 
I'm going to leave it there. The response, it must be remembered, and the response is tied into this. Then will the land be then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. May the Lord take these few thoughts today and write them on our heart, and we'll deal with part two uh, next week in the will of God.